0: Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women at all levels in engineering and technology. And one way we do that is through professional development events and online workshops. Visit www.exec.swe.org to learn more about our empowering and engaging three-day event for engineering leaders and executives taking place this June. Or attend one of our three virtual Reignite Your Light workshops designed to help women engineers at every level find happiness, balance, and direction in their careers. To learn more, visit advancedlearning.sui.org. Now let's get to today's diverse
1: episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Vidya Chamundeshwari, and I'm a part of the Society of Women Engineers Asian Connections Affinity Group's leadership team. Welcome to SWE's diverse podcast series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit swe.org for more details. In celebration of the Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, today, I'm speaking with Gloria Montano, Sui's first Asian American president. In addition to her roles as the director of Women in Science and Engineering, Newfoundland and Labrador, and at the Society of Women Engineers, Gloria has served on the boards of directors for the Canadian Center of Women in Science, Engineering, Trades and Technology, the National Center for Women in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, and the Newfoundland Lab- and Labrador Chapter of the Canadian Condominium Institute. She's now a post-salary volunteer consultant. Thank you for joining us today, Gloria. You're welcome.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: All right, let's get started with some details on your Asian connection and cultural background. Can you give our listeners some insight into your heritage, please?
2: Sure. My mother and father both emigrated from the Philippines to the United States just after World War II when Filipino soldiers were given the opportunity to join the United States Army. And I am the fourth of five siblings and the first in the United to be born in the United States. Um, that would be Fort Gordon, Georgia, to be precise. And according to 23andMe, I am 99.2% Filipino and Austronesian. Uh-huh. <laughs> that uh, that uh, actually came as quite a, a big surprise to me because that meant my genetic roots were traced directly to the historical home places of my parents and that my mother's entire lineage came from Batangas and my my, my father's lineage from was from Ilo and it didn't make mean much to me when I was in the United States, but now that I live in this small Canadian province where people here can locally trace their ancestors back to the 1700s, I I really understand now what my parents sacrificed when they left the Philippines to come to come to the United States, and and I, I feel a great loss for that. Thank you for sharing
1: that with our listeners today, Glorian. So how did you first get involved with SWE? How would you describe your journey with SWE and uh, what does it mean for you to be SWE's first Asian American president?
2: Well, I first heard of SWE uh, when I was uh, considering going to the University of Texas at El Paso. And I was looking at the catalog and they had a description of the different student organizations And in there, they had Society of Women Engineers listed. And I didn't know anything about engineers at the time. But I figured that if they had an organization, enough women for an organization of women engineers, then it must be okay to be an engineer. So that was my first introduction. And I I actually joined the student section in my sophomore year. And uh, right after I joined, I attended my first conference in Denver, and anyone who has attended a SWE conference understands how exhilarating that can be. I eventually ended up serving as a uh, student section president, where I started actually as the parliamentarian. And as president, that was a great way to uh, interact with other students and faculty members, and and definitely with professional employers. And once I graduated from university. I moved to San Jose, California, and I joined uh, the San Francisco Bay Area section, which eventually split into two sections. One's the Golden Gate section, and the other is the Santa Clara Valley section. And that's the one that I um, was affiliated with. I held a number of committee positions and all the officer positions, including section president. And um then I became actively involved in the establishment establishment of regions. And um, I actually held the pen when we divide we identified the boundaries and we had to figure out where Hawaii would reside. So I pulled it into region A and region <laughs> region J ended up with uh, uh, Alaska and I, and the people in region B were mad at me uh, forever after that <laughs> i i will say that uh uh serving as region director i did that uh, twice and and that was a very very valuable experience and i think the elimination of those uh regions was a big lost opportunity for us flea members anyway from the from the region level i went to the national level and again served on a number of the national committees and I served as Vice President of Special Services, President-Elect and President. And my focus on when I was on the board was in the area of electronic communications and at that time that meant introducing the organization to email and websites. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a brief description of my uh, my SWE work. As Sui's first Asian president, that was a really interesting question to me because this was 1998, so that was well over 20 years, and uh, it's a different, it was a different time, and being Asian wasn't really the thing that was in the forefront of my mind, and that's probably because I was raised to assimilate into the American culture, and so I, I really didn't pay a lot of attention. Um, to the fact that I was Filipino, and there was only other one other woman at the time, so it wasn't of top of mind. And to be perfectly candid, I was probably more concerned with managing my identity as um, as a lesbian during that period of time. But today, with respect to my ethnic heritage, I feel. A much greater responsibility to share uh, experiences and insight, and I think it's partly because I have the benefit of hindsight. There's not very many women who have, uh, not very many Asian women who have spent the 30 plus years in the in the um, in engineering. But the other reason is very important and it has to do with what's been happening in the in the country over this past year, and in particular these past few uh, months uh, with respect to the violence against Asian-American and uh, Pacific Islanders. And that has me really, really concerned. We hear
1: you, Gloria, and we are equally disturbed and anxious about this issue. I hope to see some light at the end of this tunnel soon.
2: Yeah, and it starts with us. And it starts with us being more visible. And we as Asians and Asian-American Pacific Islanders can learn a lot from what gay and lesbian people went through.
1: Certainly, yes. Lessons to be learned and taken
2: forward. Yes.
1: Great. So, this is for the listeners. Gloria began her career as an engineer in the Silicon Valley. And for about 20 plus years, she advanced through positions in design, customer support, technical sales, and marketing support at high tech companies in the Silicon Valleys. She left these to join the nonprofit sector as the director of an innovative program that leveraged design based experiential learning at 11 US universities to bring tangible benefit to those underserved by technology. Gloria, could you take us through some factors that influenced your transition from Silicon Valley to the Virtual Development Center at the Anita Borg Institute for Women in Technology? And what inspired you?
2: I would be happy to. Life's big transitions often come with a push as well as a pull. And um, throughout my technical or my career as a as a, an engineering professional, I, I kept my technical career separate from what I call my societal or my SWE career. And when Anita Borg asked me to join her nonprofit. And at an engineer's salary, not as an, a, a nonprofit salary, uh, that was a once in a lifetime offer that I just couldn't resist. Plus I had known of Anita through uh, work that she had done. She was you know, from the computer science side of the house, which to this day I think remains fairly distinct from uh, the SWE environment and I had often been intrigued by the work that she was doing. So the opportunity to work with Anita at a a decent salary in an area that combined the two main areas that I cared so much about was just fabulous. But in terms of the push, I had been working in the Silicon Valley for um, over 20 years by that time. And the first few years were pretty exciting because, you know, everything was new. But then uh, after a while, um, I had become quite disillusioned because of the total amount of waste that I saw in high tech. It wasn't unusual to work for on 10 different projects and have only one of them actually ship. And then I, and I saw the uh, the rewards that came to the engineers, and I compared that with what I was seeing happening in in the support services in the rest of uh, San Jose and the Silicon Valley, and and I started to become quite tired of the disruption also that came from companies that were uh, merging or acquiring other companies. It just there were too many things going on. So, so, I needed a break, and the mission of the uh, Anita Borg Institute and the VTC just really soothed my soul. And um, Anita was quite a visionary. She was a, a computer scientist who wanted technology to benefit a broader range of people and not just uh, the white males in North America and Europe who were of a certain economic class who were already involved in creating the technology. Her focus was on women. And she started where a lot of technical organizations left off. In other words, she, she assumed that there would be plenty of women who would wanna step forward and create the technology. Instead, she focused on an aspect where the leverage uh, would be of greater benefit to women. And that was in uh, terms of allowing women to create, uh, to, to pick the issues, and to choose what uh, problems were addressed by the technical workforce in the first place. So the real leverage comes in not creating the technology, but in deciding what you work on in the first place. And I thought that was a phenomenal thought because if I looked at all the work we were doing with uh, SWE, it was all about Helping individual women to more realize, uh, you know, potential that they had in individuals. But that was a one-by-one type of approach, and progress had been really, really slow, and I, I didn't see it uh, getting any any faster. So this concept of putting people putting women in a position of, of choosing the problems was very, 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 very appealing certainly yeah and um what was interesting was we had uh, students who were in engineering and computer science uh, capstone design courses at 11 different universities and this was a typical course but the difference was that the idea mm-hmm. for the products that these these projects that the students work on had to originate with women or with organizations that serve the need of needs of women. And there was really, really high satisfaction. So you can imagine for an engineering student to actually have a client that you had to deliver a solution to at the end of the work term, you know, that's the bees' knees. You don't get that very often. So and the faculty members, they really appreciated the the innovation and it was a multidisciplinary approach so we had people from gender studies and education working jointly with the computer science and the engineering faculty so everybody who was directly involved with the program was very happy with it but that was also a time when there was a uh, contraction mm-hmm. and so the organization had to shift their direction or their focus in in another uh, another way in order to just save the organization. And at the time, I couldn't explain what I thought was so valuable. and And I believe that was because I didn't have the language to describe it, because this was fundamentally cultural change. And as an engineer, we're never taught that. So... That's when I decided that I needed to find that language and I decided to go pursue a master's degree in, in a related field that would uh, perhaps give me that language. And so I chose uh, education uh, in a way to try to find that language.
1: Thank you. Thank you for walking us through that journey of yours. And certainly this transition Would be inspiring for women engineers in the future too. How do you think companies in the STEM industry can create more diverse
2: and inclusive environments? Well, I think one of the fundamental things is that we need to recognize that the STEM industry isn't a monolith and that each company has its own culture and that progress to a more diverse and inclusive environment is really relative and specific to that company and it's relative to where they started it in the first place. So within that, that in mind, I, I think there's my general message is to keep doing what you're doing. Companies need to continue to listen to their employees because that's where you get the insight Mm-hmm. And you can get more from your employees by asking them incisive questions that get too uh, deeper into what's what's uh, the essence of what's in their minds, because people will be naturally protecting that because, you know, you don't want to expose your weaknesses in your, your work realm. So continuing mm-hmm. to listen to their employees, asking good questions, and then Second, they need to find meaningful ways to demonstrate that they're authentic in terms of uh, of creating those kind of environments. And people used to call that corporate social responsibility because at that time, you know, decades ago, it was you. Demonst- the companies would demonstrate that they were good neighbors, and it all amounts to being able to. Um, having the wherewithal to treat everybody with respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then last, I'd say, um, continue to keep people as a priority because diversity and in, in creating a more diverse and inclusive environment is, its you can call it continuous quality improvement. You can call it ongoing maturity, uh, but at its uh, fundamental basis, you have people and that's what makes it.
1: That's so true. I think the world is moving in a positive direction in this sense. Uh, Previously, there was this belief that assertion is what is important, but now we are moving towards leading and showing by example that, you know, empathy is also a very good quality for leaders. Yes. So my next question is based on some roadblocks. Bamboo ceiling and model minority stereotypes can create low roadblocks for AAPI women, but I truly believe our diverse cultural backgrounds can contribute to some of our biggest strengths as leaders. How has your cultural background helped you as a leader in SWE as well as at work?
2: Yeah, this was a, a another really good question, and I consider questions good when they make me really, really, deep, dig deep inside and, and 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 reflect. And and this might sound a little bit odd, but my cultural background as a, a Filipino has actually turned out to be more helpful to me now than it was when I was in SWE or working for a paycheck. And it goes back to my family's emphasis on my assimilation into the American culture. And we did really well. My whole family did did very well with that. And so for the longest time, I only could see things from your traditional American suburban uh, perspective. Um, but I I have begun to, to recognize and understand and appreciate the value of my Filipino uh, background. And I'm, I'm really happy that it's better late than never. And um, anything that enables you to see different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And to think more critically is always key to good leadership. And I just wish that I had been able to tap um, those sources sooner. And I think it would have had uh, an effect. Now, on another plane, I do believe that the economic center of the world is shifting west uh, towards Asia. And I think Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, the women who who understand those cultures and are also well grounded in the technical fields and sciences, have the strength of the combination. And if we can combine those two perspectives with uh, greater insight and knowledge and understanding of a gendered perspective, then um, I think that bodes well for a, a whole new uh, and enriched class of leaders that have the ability to see the things that are, are are right in front of us. And when we can do that, we can make better decisions and uh, for the betterment of the, uh, the, the entire planet in all cultures.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us. It can be difficult as a working woman, especially one in a leadership role, to find a healthy work-life balance. How did you navigate through this?
2: Well, I'll be perfectly candid and say I am not a very good role model when it comes to balance. I never had children, but I salute and I support every parent out there, especially the single moms. Um, I, I don't. I honestly don't know how they do it, and you definitely need a village to, to, to uh, help parents. For the uh, first 25 years of my life, uh, my time was my own, and um, my attention was primarily focused on uh, work and SWE. In hindsight, I realized that that wasn't a that's not a that wasn't a healthy balance. Um, and I had to do things like structure time for exercise because it was so much easier to work on sweet stuff or work on work things. And for a while, I had a gym membership. And when you pay for something, you 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 tend to pay more attention to it. And uh, later on, I started, I helped to start a group called Outdoor Adventures for Women. Mm-hmm. And our mantra was to have the most amount of fun with the least amount of planning while we were outdoors and it had to include food and uh, my participation with that group uh, lasted until i moved to uh, canada but there is one really good piece of advice that i heard um, from a sweet achievement award recipient i was a i forget her name but uh, she wrote a very technical book called love letters to a lubrication engineer and the, the title uh, appealed to really people who were very technical lu- lubrication engineers. So she had a heck of a a uh, sense of humor. She was a single mom with four children, uh, very uh, young children. And this was right after 1950. 1950s. So being divorced with four children uh, was a very unusual thing and challenging circumstances. And she always wanted to earn a doctorate. So uh, like a good engineer, she did the math and she calculated uh, that there really was enough time in the day for her to complete her studies and successfully raise her children to be healthy and also well fed. Uh, The only catch was that any task she took on had to be achievable in 15 minutes or less, because that's how the chunks of time worked out when she did her math. And we all had a, a chuckle, but she pointed out that uh, the approach made her really good at sizing a task mm-hmm. and making decisions very quickly. And those are good skills, always good skills to have.
1: Thank you. Is this by uh,
2: Ellen Shirley, if I'm not wrong? I, I can't remember her name, but she's, she's listed in the uh, Achievement Award uh, list of recipients. Sure.
1: Thank you for sharing that piece of information with us. If you could give one piece of advice to AAPI women engineers who aspire to be future leaders, either in SWE or in the industry, what would it be?
2: Well, I'll be upfront and say I can't just give one, so I'll give you two. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, and, and first, I, I need to say that we need to forget about aspiring to be future leaders. I believe in the philosophy that mm-hmm. women lead from where they are and at every level. And you don't need to wait for positional power to exercise influence. Uh, and I also offer that uh, one's influence could actually be greatest when you're not seen as competition to others in power. So lead from where you are. And if you want to know more about that philosophy, there is a book called Becoming Leaders that's Mm -hmm. based on this concept and it's co-published by SWE and uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers. It's on the ASCE's bestseller list and it's being used up here in Canada as the starting module of a very popular professional development training program. So that's Becoming Leaders. The first piece of advice that I have is generic for all women. And that advice for all women engineers is you you need to pace yourself. An engineer's career is about 30 uh, years long. And when I first started engineering, that didn't even occur to me to think that far. I was like, maybe next year. And during those first 10 years, you should, and it breaks down roughly into three segments. In the first 10 years, you should be investing in strengthening your professional reputation and your personal networks. And also you should take time during that decade to, to really try to determine what uh, truly means the most to you, what's most important to you as a person. Now, the second decade can be a grind Because that's when the competition for promotions and good projects increases. And for women, it's also at the same time when family issues start to to surface. You know, you've got children, your parents might be aging. So it's sort of the decade of the perfect storm. And you need the foundation that you established in the first decade to support you through the second decade. And um, knowing what's important to you and what you value the most really helps when you're faced with making decisions that might be uh, quite difficult. So pace yourself out. Know you've got plenty of time. Know that things sort of break out into chunks. And when things break out into chunks, it's easier uh, for you to, to, to deal with them. Now, the second piece of advice I want to direct specifically to Asian American and Pacific Islander uh, women in, in SWE. Mm-hmm. And to that group, I say, stand up and be counted. The obvious challenge that, that that group will see is that you need to try to hold on to your identity. And that's probably more of a challenge for those of us who have had gone the uh, assimilation route. And we don't have that, that really strong grip on, on the Asian identity. And the other as challenge is to, when you're consulted as an Asian American Pacific Islanders, try to avoid being marginalized or being held accountable for speaking for all Asian American and Pacific Islanders by the bureaucracy. It's, it's just a natural thing that happens. but. We need to resist playing into that. Now, SWE has made a lot of progress in the area of uh, diversity and inclusion, but like uh, most other organizations, it has a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And if AAPI SWE members can find a way to speak authentically and as equals to the dominant culture, we can increase the odds of being able to harness that full power of diversity and inclusion in ways that uh, really resonate with women and allow us to finally change the system that so uh, desperately needs to be changed. So that's my advice.
1: Thank you for those two great pieces of advice. I have another question for you. How has Sui's diversity, equity, and inclusion effort evolved over time?
2: How has it evolved over? Oh, that's a a really good question. I'm trying to get these decades right. So (laughs) I I think it was early 90s, early mid-90s, somewhere in there. Um, It was at the time when um, there is a big move to... uh, I uh, established the Martin Luther King holiday. And in Arizona, they had a particularly difficult time with that and the end result was that Arizona required and particularly the universities required any organization that was going to charter a new, new chapter at the university. They had to file their diversity principles so it was the students at the University of Arizona who came to the the board and said, "Okay, we got to do this. Where's our diversity principles and our diversity statement?" And so we didn't have one. So they had a, a group come up with something, and they were the original draft was very inclusive, had everything in it. Uh, they brought it back to the board. The board gave it to the lawyer, our, our organizational lawyer, and then it came back to the board with everything struck out of it, except for what was in the law related to civil rights legislation. And in particular, one of the things that they had struck out of there is anything about sexual orientation. And the region director came back to the region and said, ta-da, here's what it is. And uh, the uh, members in the region had quite a fit and said, this isn't right. You can't just take that out all our members count. Go back and fix it. <laughs> so our our region director went back to the board and said, "My my members told us told me to tell you we need to fix this." And you know, the board did it. They they uh, looked at the uh, multicultural committee at the time and they said, uh, "We need to do something better." Uh, you know, how we how will we do this? You guys take care of it and come back with a with something good.
1: Mm-hmm. And the
2: multicultural committee did a great job they they learned they they studied the issues and interesting the multicultural committee were made up of and that's a whole different story and maybe i should not tell you that one right now (laughs) maybe next time (laughs) yes maybe next time okay so what happened was they set up a committee and there was a woman named Keandra bickerstaff out of austin Mm -hmm. who was chairing that particular subcommittee and she went to every single region and explained what they were trying to accomplish, this whole concept about diversity principles. And they started with a draft that included everything. And because she went to each location, she was able to have face-to-face discussions with people. And in that dialogue and in that conversation, people started to come come onto the same page and to hear her describe it was wonderful and I think that's the magic of the Society of Women Engineers is you have people who can can do that kind of uh, deep thinking and come out um, with something better. The one thing they did have problem with was the the sexual orientation and Keandra and the MCC stuck with it and they kept having the conversation and um, the offer at the time was to balance that with something related to um, faith. But through the power of the conversation, the people who were supporting the introduction of the faith concept realized that, that it was a different thing. And they uh, eventually came to accept the wording the way the committee had it. And we had a vote with the council section representatives and the uh, the diversity principles passed by quite a margin, if not unanimous, I can't remember. And the Society of Women Engineers became the first engineering professional society to have um, a, a, a an adopted set of diversity principles. So that's the roots of it. Yeah. Great. And from that dialogue and this conversation, People developed a a respect for each other, and a trust that enabled um, many many more challenging conversations to be uh, to be conducted in, in very very productive ways. and And I think it's the basis for where why you see the the uh, the wealth of uh, diversity the, the way it exists now, diversity and inclusion.
1: Wow! Thank you, thank you for letting us know about this is it's certainly insightful and something to remember for the future as SWEEN members. You're welcome. Gloria, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. You are an inspiration for the likes of me and most definitively a visionary and a trailblazer for aspiring women around the globe.
2: Thank you. It didn't feel like it at the time. Thank you. (laughs)
1: I'm Dr. Vidya Chamundeshwari from all of us at SWE. Thank you for listening.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. If you feel inspired to make a positive change in your career, make sure to register for SWE's professional development workshops by visiting www.exec.swe.org and www.advancedlearning.swe.org. Please don't forget to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform and share this episode with your social network. Thanks for listening.